for June 10th, 2017. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 471. Spider-Man, He Who Came Home. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are kind of like your smart, funny friends, but from the internet. We're never happier than when we're hanging out together. We are discussing the things we love, watching the movies, watching the TV, reading the books, listening to the music, playing the games, the things that we like that are made only uh, so much better by uh, hanging out and talking them. Uh, talking about them together. I'm Matt Rather, and to to hang out with me tonight, we have Mr. Pete Fenzel. Evening, Pete. Good evening, Matt. And Mr. Mark Lee. I demand pictures of Spider-Man on my desk by 12 noon tomorrow. (laughs) Notably absent from this. Notably uh, absent, unfortunately. uh, I, I mean... Well, uh, let's save that. We're we're talking about Spider Man. All spoilers, all books. Uh, the the Spider Man Homecoming film, the Marvel Cinematic Universe up to this point, um, various earlier incarnations of Spider Man and Game including, of Thrones, including Spider Man Turn Off the Dark, the Broadway musical, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> including the uh, the Avengers Live Arena acrobatic show that's currently touring the United. States. <laughs> all brand extensions, uh, all Marvel brand extensions are, are fair game on this. But no, we're not going to spoil Game of Thrones. Um, but winter is coming and we'll probably have something to say about it in a few months time. So let's uh, let's let's dive in. Spider-Man Homecoming. Uh, Pete, I-, I was watching this film in a uh, uh, you know in a dark theater here in Culver City, and one thought occurred to me more than any other. A question popped into my mind that was nagging at me for the entire duration yes. of the film. It's does Pete Fenzel have a grand unified theory of the spatial relationships? <laughs> In this movie, well, Pete, do you do you have a grand unified theory of the spatial relationships in this movie? So, yes or yes or no only. That's all I yes. want. Okay, then yes. great. My my question is answered. We're going to end early tonight, <laughs> Pete. What's up with the spatial relationships in Spider-Man: Homecoming? Well, part of what you're making fun of is my fondness for Justin Lin films, and and how my favorite kinetic action movies cars don't fly exactly it's the cars can't fly moment my favorite kinetic action movies where people are going all over the place have some sort of thematic statement about spatial orientation in them uh and justin lynn is among the best of these of course not the the director of this movie cars can't fly from uh, fast and the fear for furious seven being a big one and then so many of the action sequences involving cars dropping out of planes dropping out of buildings and then this ends up also sort of being about mortality and death and how of, everything that goes up must come down. A lot of the Fast and the Furious movies are written like a high school five paragraph essay with like the thesis statement right at the beginning of the first paragraph, right? Yeah. The, number eight, Fate was the same uh, was the same way with like, it's not the car, it's the driver. Yeah. Uh, right, right, you know, right at the yep. right at the top, you know? And it's, uh, that's great. I, I, I almost wanted to like, in true former English teacher fashion, draw a little diagram of a funnel, uh, on the chalkboard with thesis dripping out the bottom, you know? 
<laughs> yeah, another good one is from Star Trek Beyond, where he talks about how being a captain on a ship out in outside of human space, you don't know which way is which, and it's just you. And then a lot of the action sequences are about disorientation. The big climactic moment involves kind of a, G, a gravity, a zero gravity acrobatics chase where you don't know which direction is which. But enough of that. For Spider-Man Homecoming, the clear statement is Spider-Man stay close to the ground is the statement of purpose. Yep. And and so, and so much of which is great because it allows Spider-Man to stick to things. And there's this tension about Spider-Man wanting to pull away and pull towards or go up and fall down or there's even times where it gets really scary and it turns sideways and things are trying to go sideways and he's trying to pull them back together. Uh, and of course it all culminates in Coney Island, which is full of all sorts of industrial entertainments that involve picking people up and putting them down again. Uh, I pick things up and put them down, as Planet Fitness would say, is, is the theme of Spider-Man Homecoming. Uh, but but uh, a great example, well, there's so many different moments where Spider-Man is wants to be farther down than he is or wants to be farther up than he should. And the way the character is oriented toward the story and the world seems to be related mostly to whether he wants to be higher or lower or and, and not just in an absolute sense, but with regards to like acceleration and gravity. Uh, I, I'm I'm reminded of the big chase scene where and of course what happens is at the end it gets flipped, right? Like um, and through most of the movie, Spider-Man wants to get higher and then by the end, it's like, no, 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 no. The vulture needs to be lower. I'm going to pull him down for his own good. And I need to be lower. I need to pull myself down for my own good, which feels like a bit of a of an arbitrary betrayal of some of the other things that are happening. Not betrayal. That's a strong word. But reversal of some things that are happening. But but the spatial scene, I really so, wanted to. So wait, yeah. Pete, would you say that at the beginning of the movie, he's asking the question, can you take me higher? <laughs> <laughs> and that <laughs> later on in the film he needs to get low yes yeah sure yes of course <laughs> two of two of the finest karaoke tracks around yes does, higher did, and get low yeah, just fo- a quick follow-up mr fenzel does he swing from the window to the wall <laughs> <laughs> all right fenzel abstains courteously on that one but um so spider-man has a chase scene where he's chasing the vulture in this movie, and this is the one I'm thinking of one where he's going through all the backyards and he's landing on the tents and he's crashing through the brick grill or what have you. And he's like messing around with the trees and he's sort of bouncing practically from house to house. And there's this urge to defy gravity and this yanking of gravity down downward for him where he keeps having these pratfall after pratfall and kind of comic crashes. And uh, what this for me Outline is one, you know, this is what it means for Spider-Man to be in this state of tension with gravity, uh, which is, again, just those two words, state of tension and gravity. That's pretty much Spider-Man. And uh, and of course, it being funny because it's so kinetic and it's the human body in motion. But it's I, also I, he's in the suburbs and not in the city where he's, there are no lampposts and tall buildings to web sling onto and fly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Very good point. Very good point. And we can get into that in a second. But I wanted to put it forward as a as a as a unified in terms of the unified theory of the spatial relationship of the character, I wanted to compare it to the very first chase scene in Daniel Craig's Casino Royale. Do you guys remember that chase scene? You'll have to refresh. Yeah, you're, you're about to remind us. 
It is the it is a wonderful introduction of a character and particularly a wonderful reboot of a character. So Daniel Craig is chasing a gentleman. Uh, I believe they're in Africa. Uh, I don't remember too much more about the specific details of the chase. It isn't really about what he took or what he's trying to get back. He's trying to get information or what have you. And the gentleman that. Daniel Craig is chasing, the James Bond is chasing, is has all sorts of parkour-like skills and sort of jumps over things and twists over things and flips and and is very agile and, and sort of goes through construction sites and clambers up things. And James Bond just barrels through everything in front of him, just crashes through plywood walls, knocks aside fruit stands. James Bond is is an intensely focused you know, very, very insistent weapon that has been somewhat dehumanized and is being thrust forward. And and it's this really huge contrast to the elegant Pierce Brosnan, James Bond, who is all about, you know, elaborate bungee jumps and jumping and kissing and and like machine gunning yeah, people who, while who floating. Is, who is know. balletic and even a little feminine. Yes, exactly. And this James Bond was penetrative, right? The Daniel Craig James Bond was a penetrative James Bond. And the way in which Spider-Man, the uh, Spider-Man, he who came home, is bouncing around in this chaotic manner and crashing off of things and goofing around in the suburbs, but really just the kinetics of it, to me felt like a a huge reboot of Spider-Man from the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man. Yes, those guys crashed into things sometimes, but the, the kinetic pratfall nature and the sort of goofy tripping over yourself that you're doing while this is all happening uh, to me really, really re-identified the character in space. I'll give, you, some, when they, you, know, I'll g- I'll give you one more, which is that he's shorter than his love interest. Yes. Right? Which yes. is which is a great bit of realism. Oh, I actually I really I actually really liked the high school realism in this, both with the ethnic mix, which actually looks like a city high school, and uh and also with the the sort of re- having your hero, your like male action hero uh, who hasn't hit his growth spurt yet or whatever, you know, fully eight inches shorter than his uh, uh, senior love interest, right? Like, which which is just uh, which is just awesome, right? And not a. Uh, uh, um, not something that you would you would necessarily have seen in the the earlier incarnations of the character, which tended to focus on um, uh, you know uh, uh, swollenness, maybe a little a little more. Though though he was he was uh, oddly cut for a geeky yeah. fourteen year old. Uh, yes, exactly. I mean, is there any? I, I just thought of what a wonderfully elegant expression that is of the the command to stay closer to the ground and the desire to rise up of the ground is to look at the love interest who is taller than you and think if you can sort of ascend and bridge that distance. Uh, it's really interesting to think of it as a love affair between Spider-Man and a building. If you could, if you could, in the, in the words of, of, Spy- of uh, uh, Bono and the Edge, uh, rise above in uh, Spider-Man, turn <laughs> off the dark. <laughs> Thank you for invoking that. We might talk about that later. But Pete, to, to continue on this uh, spatial th- uh, thread, uh, silk <laughs> thread, if you will, uh, and also tying it to the previous incarnations of the movie incarnations of Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield versions oh, of this. Oh, oh, oh swing, just, oh, swing, swing, Mary Jane. Oh, swing, swing. Goddamn. <laughs> um, so just to cash this out all the way, right? Um, if I memory serves correctly, it's been a while since I've seen these movies, but the marketing and the whole ethos, at least of the Tobey Maguire movies, really – uh, weighed heavily on the the soaring through the New York skyscrapers, right? And uh, I think actually the first uh, marketing campaign for uh, the, the Spider-Man, the original one from 2001, featured him hanging off the, or 2002, featured him hanging off the World Trade Center, which of course collapsed. Uh, and then they recut that to be off the Chrysler Building, another very tall 
New York landmarks. Uh, is that what you're referring to, Pete? Yeah. Or this that, being a, re- a response to that and grounding him? That the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man is known for get leaping to very high heights and sort of arcing through the canyons of Manhattan. And, right. and, and I don't and, think there was yeah. a single shot of that iconic, you know, uh, swinging through the canyons, the, 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 the Manhattan skyscraper canyon. I mean, this they wasn't can't his movie put, at all. They can't put Spider-Man in Manhattan because Daredevil, Jessica Jones and Luke Cage are all there right now and Iron Fist. Right. So that's why Spider-Man is in Queens. So he doesn't run into any of them. I mean, I mean, the t- uh, Tony Stark uh, straight up says, like, you should be more of an outer borough friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Right. That's I mean, probably like, because he knows what the hand is planning. Exactly. It's like, stay out of Manhattan. It's crazy. But it's, a, yeah. it's also like I, I that moment was really wonderful because Robert Downey Jr. did a very good job delivering that line as though no one had ever heard that phrase before. And he was yeah. coming up with it off the top of his head, which is not an easy thing to do because, you know, it would be very easy to sort of try to butter the butter a little bit and be like, you know, a friendly, eh, you know, neighborhood spider. And he. <laughs> He threads the needle very, very well, uh, you know, with uh, with some Robert Downey Jr. esque good acting. <laughs> the best I, kind. <laughs> it's I mean, all, if we're, talking, if we're still talking about grounding Spider-Man. Let's talk about the Broadway musical, too, right? which uh, depended heavily, heavily on the wire stunts. Um, I was there. I saw the the um, the oh, I'm blanking on her name. Um, Julie uh, Taymor the, was the director. Yeah, Ju- yeah, yeah. Julie Taymor, the 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 crazy auteur with the Fever Dream Spider Man. Um, both cur- yeah. Well, hold on, hold, hold oh, Yeah, okay. let's not let's not get there with. with yeah. I think that the uh, the commercial ambitions of the show got sort of got away from got away from from everybody, and she couldn't have done it. I mean, Julie Taymor directed The Lion King. She's an incredible theatrical director. Sure. It makes, not to take anything know. away from I, her, I, I but, but the show Taymor that does, I, Julie Taymor didn't like Spider Man. That's why she made it about. Yeah, there is also right? that. Like, um, yeah. Now, now I, I don't want to, uh, uh, you know, speak too ill of her or, or you no. know, make her sound like something that's not. But the show that I saw that she had presumably had a major hand in before it was completely retooled was Batch Insane. Oh, I have to edit that out. Sorry. Uh, it was uh, uh, Spider Poop Insane. Yeah, um, you have to edit that because DC owns bats. Also that, yes. Um, <laughs> and this is a Marvel property. Uh, and it, it, it was, uh, you know, soaring. It had its character, main character, soaring high through the rafters. It, uh, the story was just uh, reaching all over the place to Greek mythology and, 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 and areas where it really should had no business uh, reaching out to. Um, so, sure, you know, this this movie is a uh, is far more grounded than that. And uh, I don't know, Pete, if you or Matt or you have seen The Amazing Spider-Man, the Andrew Garfield uh, the two of those movies, I haven't seen them, but uh, by all accounts, um, this is a much tamer, more grounded version of it. I mean, there's no electro villain, right? There's no that sort of uh, there is uh, another black man playing an electric villain, but he's not like pure electricity. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, there's a, I mean, there's, I, there's a yeah, great piece recently about a uh, great piece I read recently about how it's really kind of getting inappropriate how many of the black superheroes have electricity powers there's just way too many like a way way too big proportion yeah it's a thing it's like static shock here you have the shocker you have electro right in the case of electro he they made him black for the movie i think uh just you know to add to the diversity and representation of the cast which is a good thing but in doing so ended up further reducing the diversity of superhero and supervillain portrayals uh i mean there's a lot of theories as to why this is the case uh, perhaps having to do with 
uh, being involved in the sort of uh, urban infrastructure and there being lots of lights there, I guess, or like industry or just color use and like, oh, you know, it's great to use light colors and dark colors together. But yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to I didn't mean to bash you. That was not something I was just throwing off the cuff. It was part of a larger conversation that this movie and that movie both have electric black men. Which is fine, but like, just kids gets conspicuous after a while. You know, let him give him a big hammer. I guess he had a hammer also. It was a power fist of sorts. Yeah, I mean, an electro electro power fist, right? I don't know the the the. Um, yeah, it's a, you can't just change the race of characters. You actually have to think about what you're doing a little bit. Like, put a, a minimal amount of thought at least into the uh, into the effort that that you're making but mark you were you were making a point about the right. amazing spider uh, the amazing spider-man and i think none of us has has seen them or pete did you did you tip your hand that you had no 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 no, no. i have not seen them. that i mean and this is this is interesting i i actually so uh, there were trailers for uh the i guess war for the planet of the apes uh, before this movie and um and the um the friend i was with leaned over to me and said are you uh, are you up to date on that franchise? And I said, no, you got to draw the line somewhere, right? And like, we- <laughs> oh, those are those are those are fantastic movies. <laughs> See? Oh. Yeah, but that's it's arbitrary where you draw the line. I mean, there's no, you know, there's no good way to there's no good way to do it. But we all did it. My point was really, we all did it for the Amazing Spider-Man. Like, like uh, yeah. that 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 ish, we are not going to mess with, right? It's something about how the movies were positioned, how they were marketed, like pretty much straight off the bat. Uh, we all shrugged our shoulders like, nah. Well, this not, and, not, not into it. and also this sort of benefits from the Sony Disney deal, not only bringing Spider-Man, bringing, you know, uh, Spider-Man into the um, the Avengers universe, the, the Disney Marvel Cinematic Universe, but also the creative involvement of Disney people like Kevin Feige is uh, the first credited producer on uh, on this film. Is it not Phage? Is it, it Phage? It, no, I believe it's pronounced Faye. But the... Oh, <laughs> That's the yogurt. <laughs> but uh, he... Uh, uh, he's he's the Marvel Cinematic Universe producer, and like this this sort of this creative input. So I mean, I think there's something. It's getting caught up in the the like the Disney reality distortion field a little bit in terms of why it seems uh, why it seems exciting. There were three. Yeah, it didn't hurt. Three teams of screenwriters credited on this movie, and you know there were probably another half dozen in the wings who don't get who don't get screen credits. But it, the way look, when you look at if we talked about this before, when you look at written by credits, uh, ampersand means that a team and the word and written out means it's separate drafts or separate teams separate passes whatever and so like there were there were uh three uh two ands so three uh units linked by ampersands uh six six writers total that that i know about Mm. uh yeah Uh, uh, so it's worth noting while we're talking about the sony marvel team up is that uh, uh other people on the internet have theorize that there's a meta story going on here where uh, Tony Stark, the more mature, more accomplished uh, mentor, it plays the part of Disney Marvel and Spider-Man uh, plays the part of Sony, who uh, had been flailing about, wasn't uh, didn't really know what it was doing, needed to be brought back to the ground. Getting a hacked, grounded story under getting, the tutelage of, of the uh, old yeah, inventor. Right, getting hacked getting by hacked. North Korea, <laughs> releasing films like The Interview. Yeah, that is rough, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much uh, weight there is to put into that, but it is an interesting parallel, if nothing else. Um, so, uh, what was there more to say, Mark, about the outer boroughs esque uh, aspects of of this? Like, it it keeps them low yeah. to the ground because the, oh, yeah. the the buildings, you know, in uh, in Queens where he's from, right? Like, don't um, just don't rise as high as as the buildings in the the metropole, right? It also it makes him, I suppose. Uh, working class as opposed to uh, a knowledge worker, right? Though he is a uh, is crack science student. Um, what I mean, what else? What do What do you feel like are the outer boroughs characteristics of of the story? Well, it helps uh, support the broader themes of class in this movie, the class divide. And uh, we'll use this as a jumping off point to start talking about the villain, the villain, uh, Michael Keaton's Adrian Toomes, I believe, um, who really plays up this working class blue collar version uh, of Tony Stark. Uh, we'll get to that in a second, but just to, to hit up on some of the, the kind of the local color things here, I appreciated how um, they went out of their way to show subway stops in Queens. And I believe in Astoria, Long Island city, uh, like you know, the, the subway stops that are named in the movie, uh, you can clearly see, uh, uh, it puts them in a, in a geographic place on a map that is definitely not Manhattan. Uh, another good detail is the local corner of Bodega, where, um, where where Peter Parker gets a sandwich, where he plays with the Bodega cat, which is a real thing in New York, by the way, um, because there are so many freaking rodents. Uh, bodegas, in violation of strict uh, Department of Health guidelines, will have a cat uh, in uh, that just laces around, uh, except when it's killing the mice and killing the rats. Um, so those are uh, really nice local touches, which further enforces this notion that he's not in Manhattan. He's not where Tony Stark is, right? Uh, where where Stark Tower looms above everything in the distance. Um, and, and one other thing just to mention before we start to pivot to the villain uh, on, on the sort of the, the, the outer borough nature of this movie, right? As we mentioned before, the, 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 the climax takes place on Konya, on the beach in Konya Island, uh, which is a notable New York landmark, of course, but again, far from the, uh, the, the luxurious skyline and skyscrapers of Manhattan. Yeah. So the movie really had location and, uh, on its mind as a way to highlight the class divide going on. Quick follow-up, Mark. Can you even get a sandwich for $5 in New York City anymore? Yes, in the Outer Pearls. In the, in the <laughs> where they're probably, you know, skirting some various city regulations to keep their prices low. Hey, listen, I'd, uh, honestly, I'd rather have a cat than a bunch of mice running around, you know? If those uh, are my choices. Uh, agreed. Um, I, I, I can't comment further on Department of Health and Mental Hygiene Policy, but I do like my Bodega Cats. Um, okay, but so let's let's talk about the villain, right? Um, who in the uh, in the in the sort of the intro, the the prologue of the movie, he's shown that he is a blue collar guy. He's come in almost like the cleanup crews after nine eleven, right after the Battle of New York, when the Chitari uh, invaders come in. You know what we see at the climactic battle of the Avengers, first Avengers movie. Um, they destroy huge swaths of Manhattan, including Grand Central Station. His team of burly roughneck guys are, are, are doing the hard, dirty work of cleaning up after the superheroes uh, level half the city, of course, in defense uh, you know, from, the, from the aliens. But then the, the powers that be, the establishment, some combination of the government and Stark Industries, right, walks in. They say there was a the Department of Damage Control, and we're taking this cleanup job over. And... Uh, Tombs, uh, Mike, uh, uh, Michael, uh, Michael Keaton's character, says that I was just awarded a government contract and I you know, spent all this money to provide for my men and all this kind of stuff, and you're going to take all this away from me. And the man says, like, yeah, pretty much. 
I'm going to do that. Side note, by the way, government procurement is that messed up where this sort of thing is plausible, where a contract could be awarded and pulled out. Uh, the rug could be pulled out from some, from someone. Uh, uh, that's the type of verisimilitude they're going for in these movies. Um, but anyway, so just to, to, to tee this up and to pass off the conversation, all this really sets up Tombs as a blue-collar alternative to Iron Man, right? Uh, he's not a billionaire. He's just kind of, you know, getting by... Uh, you know, he and for, circumstances force him to go into the legal arms business, um, which Iron Man, of course, exited because of, uh, you know, of his him getting religion in the cave in Afghanistan. Um, and through the whole movie, Michael Keaton of Tombs is, is talking about how, you know, he's just doing what he needs to do to provide for his family because the people in, in fancy Stark Tower, they don't care about the little people in the outer boroughs that are, uh, you know, just kind of scraped by on the ground again. Um, uh, and, uh, and that makes him a really sympathetic character. It's really effective from a storytelling perspective. But of course, you, you know, you can't help but to think about the broader conversations we're having about income inequality and class divides and things like that in our universe. Um, so there's a lot going on with class and with the villain here. Um, I'm just scratching the surface here. So, uh, Matt or Pete, you want to take it from here and well, I, expand? I'll just I just want to point out one thing uh, that at the beginning, the not the the main woman who is sort of seen there and later, sort of running the show in terms of the the uh, uh, damage control. Um, Department, which I just thought was funny. That's such a great, you know, uh, such a great uh, federal department name. Um, but the the functionary who Michael Keaton punches, what he says is, "You shouldn't, you shouldn't have overextended yourself." So he's saying that he's that he should stay closer to the ground, like metaphorically. Well, it might have right. been slightly better. The writing might have been slightly better if you, he said something like, "You're getting uppity, you're getting above yourself, you're jumped up, or something." You know, uh, some kind of height related or like uh you know like yeah um uh, metaphor to to do it but he's he's saying uh you know he's saying the same thing right like that this is uh you know that the the provision of economic opportunity um is a sort of tightly regulated monopoly right uh i i Pete, did you have thoughts in this direction? Yeah, what I would add to that is I would use this as a way of widening the idea that what Michael Keaton's character, what what Tombs, which makes me laugh because it's also the name of the villain, the sort of similar scale of villain in uh, the Chronicles of Riddick, who also has a sort of rickety crew of hustling bounty hunters or whatever, uh, Tombs. But he's uh, he's not just providing for his family. He's trying to he has ambition and he wants to he doesn't want to just provide for them. He's not like Jean Valjean stealing bread. It's that he wants to make something good for his family. And and I mean, and I think that the identification that his family is multiracial (laughs) shows that there's quite a bit more going on. Right. Than his uh, necessarily surface level apparent because he doesn't just have a house. He has a really nice house. I think the the piece of detail about. Michael, there were two pieces of detail about Michael Keaton's quote unquote blue collar character that I really liked, especially. And one of them is in the scene where he's buying time by villain speaking to Spider Man, which is sort of like mansplaining. He's villainsplaining, uh, where he's, he's telling him things that he probably already knows or can figure out, is when he's trying to stall so that the, the, uh, the hawk, the metal hawk wing thing can come in and, and screw up the columns Samson style is that there is actually a 
like an engine block hanging over his shoulder, like an internal yeah. combustion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know whether it's a V6 or a V8, probably a V8 engine block hanging over his shoulder, <laughs> which is just hilarious. Um, and then the other one is that is the car he drives, which is a delight. Is that he drives like either like an early 2000s or like a late 90s Jaguar. So he and just think of this. He drives a Jaguar. This is a, now this is a car that he must have bought like a long time ago, but he keeps it. And, and, and even though he has this super fancy house that he could probably well, he's probably double mortgaged on it and underwater, <laughs> knowing the, how things proceeded in those areas of the New York metropolitan area in the aughts and teens. <laughs> but this this idea that he needs to keep up the appearance of being successful, that he needs to have that status symbol. Having grown up in New Jersey, the idea of a guy driving a Jaguar, especially the old Jaguars that have those sort of torpedo shapes on the headlights and were really, really solid, uh, just known for very high quality builds, but were not the kind of cars that, you know, regular people, quote unquote, would consider worth the money or time. There's this sense of quality to them where you feel like driving that says more about what the person wants than about what they have. As opposed to something, well, I mean, it's similar to a BMW in that way, but I feel like it shows a real sense of both sort of aspiration, and I wouldn't necessarily say entitlement, but a sense of a sense of self and of of one's identity that this is something that one has earned or achieved or is worth. It sounds uh, like you're saying it also betrays their insecurity. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, so many, not obviously, but yeah, there is a, there's an insecurity behind it. You're 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 picking, you're buying a car that is that secure. Because you know that what you have isn't really secure, and you are the—you know—you're sort of the bulwark between security and insecurity. That you're the person who created your success, whether that's true or not. In a strict sense, you—you you own your own success in your own mind, or maybe in reality. In this case of Michael Keaton, he can probably, or like Tombs, he can probably pretty safely take credit for the success of his, you know, city contracting business. Although, of course, city contracting is not, as you've said, not necessarily fair. There's a certain variety of various sorts of, you know, nepotism and favoritism and all that sort of nonsense. But, like, but what I'm basically coming around to is that that it is important to the vulture to be building a better life. And it is important that that this sense of the better is something that Tony Stark also has. And it's of a it's of a thing with the idea of innovation as as a sort of uh, shrine of the TED talk that we're that, you know, business activity makes the world better, makes people better, makes things better. It's not just about doing the same old thing over and over again. It's about improving. And yes, Michael Keaton is a blue collar guy, but he's not like a Rust Belt steel town nostalgist. He's he's somebody who has access to a certain sort of set of tools, and he's also ambitious, and he also wants things to be better for his people, and you know that includes his employees, even when he is isn't accidentally murdering them, uh, <laughs> or or on purpose. Um, but yeah, but that's just another thing. It's about it's about aspiration, and and it's weird and unfair that for Michael Keaton's character, it's hubris that needs to be punished. And for, you know, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, well, early on, it's hubris that needs to be punished. But then later on, it becomes a virtue that saves the world on like many, many occasions. Although we are we do see some measure of Michael Keaton's (laughs) character's pseudo redemption over the course of the story. Like he's not the worst of the bad guys ever. Um, Particularly at the end in the the post post credits. I mean, there there are a couple of things. I I, I have a couple of thoughts here. They're not 
maybe we can make something out of this this raw material. Like uh, maybe if we steal, if you steal a box of my thoughts, maybe you can force them into an <laughs> awesome wingsuit with which you'll you'll soar through the air. But um, a couple things. Like I, my sense of the Michael Keaton story was that uh, he was a regular blue collar guy, you know, with a, a salvage business until. Um, he started stealing the stuff until he started stealing the uh, the alien artifacts and stuff like that, and that is what all the the nice house and the the stuff like that came from, right? That that you know um, that his life was a little more modest because he's you know he's uh, uh, shown in coveralls, right? Like he's shown dealing with sort of day-to-day not particularly grandiose personnel challenges like people who show up late and you know things like that and and then like you know smash cut to eight years later and it's uh um he's wearing that bomber jacket he's you know sort of going around nicer he has the nice house he has the uh, but he must have been married, and just from the timeline, he must have been married and had had his daughter already. Um, but that that like some of that that stuff came later, and was it was a transformation in in that character. Um, he sort of you know some some are uh, born wealthy industrialists, some achieve wealthy industrialistness, and some have wealthy industrialists thrust upon them. Uh, Spider Man, I guess, is in the latter category for the number of times that he gets uh, thrown to the ground by Birdman. But the uh, the you know he there's a difference between being sort of born into it and having it like you know the legacy of of Howard Stark is kind of this burden um, that Tony has, and the idea of like it being a weapons company is a you know one of the the manifest topics of Iron Man One, where he's dealing with this is what the guy in the cave says to him like this is what this where do you think you, all this work goes you know what do you, who do you think gets these weapons, um, but uh, the other thing is that that um, Tony is a professional genius and Michael Keaton is a professional manager. Right, and that's uh, th- those are sort of different. Uh, those are different things. Like he's Tony is depicted as an artist, right? A- as being kind of rather he'd rather be alone in his workshop doing doing things by himself. And Michael Keaton is more like a, uh, an, an executive, even like he's setting strategy, he's identifying market opportunities. You know, he doesn't do the engineering himself. He doesn't do the heavy lifting himself. Uh, a lot of this, you know, uh, a lot of this stuff is is kind of an organization um that that he's built and i i you know i'm not sure if this tracks but like is can you hang the moral difference on on any of those things those differences in the character circumstances well not exactly in that way but uh i'm gonna rephrase your positive framing of michael keaton's character you know as the manager um because his villain uh, his nom de villain is the vulture right um he steals uh, and you could say that, you know, his management style in certain ways is, is, is theft, it's exploiting um, uh, raw materials and the talents of his workers for his own gain. Um, so in that regard, then, you know, Tony Stark is the creative genius. He's generative, right? He, he unleashes, he, he brings these things out into the world through his own 
um, ingenuity, whereas the vulture steals it from the aliens, steals it from the government, um, and then it steals the in, the technical prowess of his employees, and then uses that for profit and, 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 and evil. Right, which is which is sure, and I think that that's probably something close to. The distinction that the film draws, right? Like that's where the film's heart is a little bit, and and lets us together here uh, sort of admit that this is crap, right? <laughs> like that that there is a sort of vulture-like aspect to all capitalism. Um, that that's sort of and other and other ways of economics as well, you know. including manorialism and communism and all Mer- sorts of Merc- mercantilism, especially. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when mercantilists became communists, I feel like. There, there were fewer literal vultures involved and more figurative vultures. Sure, any any kind of any kind of economic development, right? Like involves this sort of redistribution of uh, uh, <laughs> redistribution well, I mean, even, even, yeah, of, just, of raw materials. Just also just people doing business. And and govern the business of government is business, right? To quote Calvin Coolidge. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is the first time I think we've quoted Calvin Coolidge on the podcast. Uh, Wouldn't be the last, though. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. No, sorry, I didn't mean to say that, but but I didn't mean to, like, crap on your point, as I so often do, Matt, and I apologize. I do it because I feel like you can't be hurt. And <laughs> well, yeah, much like I, Spider-Man appears to be invincible. <laughs> right. Yeah, I was, I was bitten by a radioactive blowhard, and I got my powers of overthinking. <laughs> Uh, well, no, 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 I don't think you were. I, I don't think you were crapping on my point, and I don't think you were meaning to okay. to crap on my point. And, and you know, thank you. That's that's nice. But but um, you know, it's the 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 idea. Um, my my point was to sort of collapse the moral distinction that I I would bet the film that Mark outlined that I would bet the film wants to make um, between the sort of good and heroic forms of exploitation and the uh, the bad, you know, and sort of scavenging uh, forms of yeah. uh, the more Mad Maxian forms of of exploitation that uh, uh, that they're not. I mean, really considered in terms of their dynamics, they are not all that different. Yeah, it's a conflict between Audis that are good and vans that are bad. <laughs> 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 or jaguars that are bad. And right? Jaguars that are bad. Old jaguars that are bad, and new Audis that are good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what I, did I mean, you guys? Well, Actually, can I can I make one? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, there's so uh, much to say. There's so yeah, much. Yeah, I know to there, say. there are a few different directions to go, but uh, let's what the hell? Let's talk about it. like the meta casting going on with Michael Keaton, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, between the fact you know, his own superhero past as Batman and then his most recent turn as uh, Birdman. I'm not going to quite say superhero because that that movie was uh, something else. Uh, I, <laughs> I mean, you can't put Michael Keaton in a superhero movie without being aware of the metacasting implement, impl- impl- implications of it, right? Uh, that being said, I don't know if there's too much if there's too much to read into it. I mean, uh, my personal thoughts on Birdman uh, are, are that uh, I thought the movie was rather mean spirited towards comic book movies, and, and Michael Keaton's uh, passes Batman uh, kind of unfairly so. Um, but I don't think the movie trades that heavily on it, except for the fact that. Um, he is a villain that flies through the air and also um, his eyes are green and there's a wonderful moment in the Jaguar where the light turns green and casts his face in green light, which I believe is evocative of the Birdman color palette. Um, so I think it's more sort of like just an interesting, fun coincidence, at least the Birdman connection. Um, but uh, I don't know. Do you guys think there's anything deeper going on? Well, there's gung ho. 
<laughs> with Michael Keaton. Are, are we reaching way back to like gung ho and Johnny Dangerously and things like that? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I'm not familiar with that. Uh, well, so. I mean, this is I'm really I'm trying to well, gung ho is a movie in which Michael Keaton tries to conduct some manner of reconciliation between Japanese auto executives and Detroit auto workers who are in under the strain of the 80s uh, sort of shifts in the automotive economy. And it's 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 a pretty dated movie, but relatively positive for the time. Um, I believe the uh, uh, Watanabe Minor is in it, I think uh, he he of, uh, of, of 16 Candles, not he of Last Samurai. Um, I think it's 60 candles. Uh, but anyway, there, there's a, there's a, there's a whole sort of cloud of different, of people and images that I associate having grown up in the New York area. And I don't know if you guys associate with it. That's part of why I have trouble calling it strictly blue collar because it, it also includes people. It also includes the culture of stuff like the Wolf of Wall Street. And I, and I, where it's like, you got to go and, and hustle and, and make your living. And, and, you know, you're not a, a sort of elite uh, hyper-educated person. You're not a genius, but if you work hard and you're hungry, there's opportunity for you. And this is all connected. And Michael Keaton, for me, is identified for this in like a lot of his roles. Uh, but so Michael Keaton, when he's talking about how the evils of society and with the with the V8 engine block behind him, he says something about how like we fight their wars, we do their stuff, right? And it really made me think of the Billy Joel song Allentown. And, and then later, when Spider-Man decides not to join the Avengers, uh, Robert, Downey, uh, Robert Downey Jr. compares him to Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> and, and and so, it, I don't know, it's not a specific word-for-word quoting of Allentown, but this the, the, uh, the 80s New York area working-class man uh, who has ambition and wants a better life as president in the work of like Springsteen and and uh, Billy Joel. To me, Michael Keaton is kind of in that oeuvre of people or in that paradigm. He's in that, that cloud of folks that could be connected to that sort of thing. Bruce Willis would also be in there because of John McClane and because of Hudson Hawk. Um, I mean, would you think that this is a movie where sort of where Bruce Willis also could have played the vulture, although not as well as Michael Keaton? I don't think particularly, but it would have been a similar sort of thing. Uh, it was a similar that, casting. It, it was a similar casting as the casting of of Mel Gibson as the villain in Expendables Three, right? Mm, Where yeah. it functioned in in a way because the your you know uh, look if it, <laughs> uh, the the meta the meta aspects um, and also I don't know with, with Michael Keaton there there's a sense I mean I guess now he is uh, um, he is Michael Keaton. Keaton of spotlight and not necessarily Michael Keaton of, of, uh, multiplicity. Right. But, um, he'll, he'll always be Beetlejuice to me. Matt. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean a little bit, right? Like, and there was one tiny little glimmer of Michael Keaton crazy eye in this movie. And it was so good to see. It's nice to know that it's still there. The Michael Keaton crazy eye, um, that he, uh, he like looked back over his shoulder and there was just this little like toothy half grin and twinkle in his eye where, where I, I was, I, I just wanted to hear it's showtime. And, uh, uh, you know, it's nice to, it's nice to have that, but like, he's, you know, um, I, I I wonder if there's something about him sort of being artistically jumped up a little bit, right? Like, and you know, I don't know. You never know. I I don't buy into 
the sort of economics of prestige in like who's a fancy good actor like Eddie Redmayne and who's a uh you know work a day um whatever sort of non-prestigious uh non-prestigious actor because those those are the products of a political discourse but but a little bit I wonder if that wasn't being I mean if he's not you know uh, Michael, I don't even know where to go with this. Mel Gibson's. Uh, we talked about that speech that he gives, the the villain splaining that he does uh, in Expendables Three, as like you know, I was uh, I was lethal. We- I was Mad Max. I was lethal weapon. I and and now I'm an anti semite. You know, as be- just being this this. Uh, spew of bile and rage uh, over his treatment at the hands of of a society that changed, you know, whose rules changed sort of underneath him. Like back in the day, anti-Semitism is just what we did, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and there's a <laughs> and there's a little bit of and the, it's not the same. It's you know, uh, it's not the same with. Um, Michael Keaton, but a little bit, it's just like, you know, I was Batman. I was, you know, and now I'm a fancy guy. And now, and, and you're saying I can't be, I can't be fancy and win Oscars for spotlight. And I have to do superhero movies. Like we, we multiplicity for them. We Birdman for them, you know, and that, that like, uh, uh, that sort of thing. We fight their, we fight their multiplicities and we mister their moms. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Allow allow me to introduce an additional piece of context to make this even more interesting. Michael Keaton is a is an offshoot. If you want to do a little bit of micro history uh, here, here's a pop quiz for you. What is the media titan? What is the cultural titan? The the body of work of vast greatness that where Michael Keaton started his really uh, his ascendance as a career in show business. Where, where do you think Michael Keaton's first big association with a major cultural moment was? Oh, Which was posse it, is he? Uh, was it in the 80s? Was it, uh, was it Johnny Dangerously? Michael Keaton is Mr. Rogers' posse. Oh, what? Mike, Mike, yeah, Michael Keaton is from, is from Western Pennsylvania, and he was on public television in Pittsburgh, and he was a PA on Mr. Rogers, and he was like a, a minor comic character on Mr. Rogers because Mr. Rogers was shot in Pittsburgh uh, in those years. Uh, it was, I think it was shot in Toronto for some other years as well. But, but Michael Keaton's a college – he dropped out of Kent State. And went back home, went back to Pittsburgh, and he got a job with Mr. Rogers. And from there, he became a theater actor. And and then he and then finally, uh, he went on to L.A. and he was on like the Mary Tyler Moore show and stuff. But like, if you want to think about sort of a forgotten legacy and a place where show business people can come from, I mean, it's sort of like there's some things and works of art that are kind of Muppet posse, and like Farscape, for example, is a Muppet is a Muppet show. It's it's Brian Henson, and it's got like Muppet posse values. I feel like Michael Keaton as an actor, when you think about him as having Mister Rogers values, it, I mean, it kind of works because he's from the neighborhood. He's it's it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Yeah. Won't you, won't <laughs> you, you be my friendly neighborhood, neighborhood Spider Man? Yeah, the friendly neighborhood Spider Man. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Michael Keaton did the tribute on uh, PBS to Mister Rogers after Mister Rogers died because he worked with him. Huh. And he was probably wow. the biggest star who worked with him. I did not know yeah. that. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's so funny to think that Michael Keaton here, the metacasting here is like the neighborhood has turned against me and now the neighborhood is turning bad. And so I'm going to get in my magical trolley and I'm going to like start stealing uh, alien tech and, and uh, I'm going to get X the owl to fly in on you and just F up your S. I feel like the, the, I feel like this class, this, and we've been sort of expanding on this sort of class plot for, uh, plot for a minute now, but I feel like it's given the lie to by the other major plot of Spider-Man which is a sort of coming of age story, right? Where the the sort of the limitations of uh, of Peter Parker are revealed to be significant and serious. And like, in fact, you should not go stage a uh, one man rescue operation or one man sort of crime stopping operation on the Staten Island ferry uh, because you're outmatched and you don't you don't know the the skills. You're still riding a bike with with training wheels. I mean, do you still? Um, do you still buy the the class story of like how you know they don't want us to jump up when it's it's coupled with this teenage story of of how you actually should uh, how you actually should be uh, treated like a kid a little bit when you're a kid? I think that it's not uh, it's not it's not that it's not coherent, but it's that this dynamic of jumping up and being pulled back down is executed differently in different contexts in the movie. There is not a consonance to it. Because although it does, because it actually it does kind of make sense. It kind of makes sense with the pro, with the the painful reading of Michael Keaton's character, which is that the movie is saying that the Audi drivers are the good guys and the people who drive old Jaguars and try to keep them up and, and can't and can't buy a new car are, are the are the bad guys. What was Flash's car? The coupe that he was driving? That's it. That was a TT, I think. I think that was an Audi TT. Oh, okay. Uh, twin tur- I think it's a TT convertible. It yeah. might have been an A4, but I think it was a TT. Uh, and so it's funny. It's like, well, you know, if you're mature in this world, you drive an R8. That's the Iron Man car. But the young bloods can drive TTs, which are also quite expensive and beyond the means of somebody like Michael Keaton. But yeah, I mean, I guess I, I fixate on the cars so much just because of all the Fast and Furious stuff. But I totally get what you're saying that this idea of like the 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 limitations that are being placed on you are good sometimes. Because they're you're a child. <laughs> well, it's oh, okay. So like, let it let the the yeah. It's interesting. Like, I'm not su- I'm not sure it is coherent. There there yeah. are legitimate and illegitimate sources of authority, right? And we actually see that in in the high school, right? The the love interest. Uh, or I, you know what? I'm I'm going to go cross functional here. We're gonna we're gonna cut across several dimensions of this. The uh, the Tony Stark authority is legitimate, right? And he he knows a thing about putting on a suit and going and uh, you know uh, punching bad guys. So so you should listen to him. He speaks from experience. His skills are. Uh, hard one. Um, Flash is illegitimate authority, and he's trying to sort of lo- lord his status over Peter uh, the whole the whole movie. I I mean I really I don't know. I wanted like I wanted the scene where he gets his comeuppance and like Spider Man shows, but that's not that's not this movie. That's where this movie is like pretty scrupulous about. Um, 
keeping the kinds of gratifications on offer, you know, within the scope of, of the character's realistic expectations. I mean, given that there's nothing realistic about any of the characters at all, but, but the, the expectations of a, of a, a high school freshman or sophomore, or whatever he is, that he doesn't, uh, he, he's not going to get a huge moment where he shines and, and, uh, gives yeah, the, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't get like the rainy makeout scene. Yeah. He doesn't get the like triumphant beat down in the hallways scene he doesn't get to be superman superman sure he, yeah he's a teenager Got or, it. or even that or even some of those toby mcguire moments where he like caught all the objects on his uh uh he caught all the objects on the lunch tray when they when they slipped and fell and was you know sort of inadvertently uh did that and and he doesn't get to tell off his nemesis you know uh, his nemesis flash he does get to steal his car but he's not there's that moment of recognition where it's like oh curses i've been bested by my social inferior uh which you know you you sort of root for in a in a in a situation like that so so my point is that there's there's good authority and then there's sort of there's sort of trumped up authority and i think that that tony is an ambivalent figure in this because he represents uh good authority which is sort of expertise derived through practice um he also represents sort of bad authority which is authoritarianism and just sort of uh uh aristocratic privilege or hereditary privilege uh and sort of being in with the being sort of in with the government and the fix sort of being in uh in that uh in that respect but but with respect to spider-man he's with respect to peter parker he's um you know he he is a good he is a good and legitimate authority figure uh and that's the you know that's as, as near as i can come i don't know pete clearer i like this i like this a lot because well then you look at happy and happy is a bad authority figure <laughs> <laughs> happy is the authority figure is the institutional authority figure uh, the uncaring parent that the adolescent is trying to get to understand and also the the great example of like the kind of person in a in a different Spider-Man movie, Sp- uh, Peter Parker gets really angry with Happy and then flips and switches sides to the Vulture because Happy doesn't pay any attention to him. And maybe the Vulture makes him feel special, like he's cared for. <laughs> but that's not this movie either. That's more of a Tobey Maguire story. But Happy is illegitimate authority vested in institutions and it is not appropriate for the task that it's being deployed. And that's a case where Happy needs to get closer to the ground because he's too up in yeah. the up in the skyscraper. Well, a little Wait, bit. Yeah, Peter, yeah. Wait, hold on. Talk more about how Peter Parker or slash Spider-Man is an authority figure. I mean, you know, he is so often reacting to those around him, uh, you know, Iron Man and the Vulture. Uh, how does he express his own agency and his own authority over other people? And sorry, uh, sorry, I might, I may have said it wrong. What I, what I meant was that he has relationships with authority figures and that he has to distinguish between, uh, the good and the bad ones. Right. Um, there's, there's, uh, that the, the legitimate and the, the illegitimate ones, right? Like is, is it, is it good for, I mean, should Michael Keaton stay close to the ground the way that Peter stays close to the ground? Like should, happy get uh you know uh closer to the ground like who who is legitimately up in the air and who is sort of trumped up or who is sort of uh putting on putting on errors or something like that okay all right so how about aunt may what is her authority over spider-man or or peter parker just supreme hotness 
<laughs> that was uncomfortable. A little bit. I mean, a little bit, especially since, like, you know, as a as a more mom, as a more as a woman closer to his realistic mom age, she was realistically affectionate with him. The way the kind of mm-hmm. grandparent age uh, characters wouldn't wouldn't be. And it, when when he's like, when you have this shot of his, of her sort of cradling and embracing him to comfort him, and the shot is three quarters her butt in tight pants, like that's. <laughs> uncomfortable i was i was like uh you know um i don't i yeah i I don't don't know i will say that the the most disappointing moment in the movie for me was when peter comes home to aunt may and he's crying and he's wearing the i had a great time visiting new york t-shirt or whatever it is the novelty t-shirt and she confronts him and she says you've been sneaking out you left the school trip. You left home. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. What's going on? And and Marissa Tomei puts in a great bit of acting there where you really feel like she thinks that he's like on drugs, right, or in a gang or in real trouble. And and he and she says, you know, tell me the truth. I don't know about you, but I really wanted him to tell her the truth. Yeah, I, yeah. I really yeah, did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought I, I was really setting did. that up for sure. I mean, I really wanted him to tell her the truth. And and it's not like by the end of the movie, she knows the truth anyway. So that's not a huge loss. Although the joke at the end where she's like, what the F? What other what other movies can you think of that end on an unsaid curse word, <laughs> like an undropped F-bomb just hovering in midair? Uh, but yeah, but Aunt May is supposed to be able to demand authority by virtue of her like genuine caring and affection for him and their relationship. And and I think that that's legitimate authority. And, and her ability to drive Peter Parker to... Uh, to high school functions. <laughs> well, she drives an old Volvo, so she keeps them safe. And and the, and the headrests are heavily focused on because they'll cradle their heads. What about this? How about, you know, my favorite uh, in terms of the complexity and the nuance is what's the legitimacy of the authority of Captain America in this movie? Yeah. <laughs> oh, there you yeah. Go. oh, that's good. That's really good. <laughs> right. Because because Peter Parker is and I, I won't even flesh out all of it, but Peter Parker starts the movie by fighting Captain America and taking his shield. And then you see Captain America put up in front of classes, telling them to do things like sit ups. And then you hear Hannibal Burris call Captain America a war criminal. Which is, <laughs> and then you have Peter Parker sent to detention where he's supposed to listen to Captain America and he refuses and like sneaks out. Did you, did you guys stay through the credits? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the final scene right at the end. This is really, really glorious, right? Like because this is the third, you know, and a great little meta joke about these these end credits scenes as as well. I, I mean, uh, to, uh, not to underthink it in a certain way, but uh, the whole message about authority figures is it's complicated, yeah. right? <laughs> Iron Man has these good qualities and bad qualities. Captain America can be both a war criminal and a uh, an authority figure, like a motivational speaker. Uh, you know, uh, the people are are crossing lines uh, all the time here, and well, it's difficult. You know, someone like Peter Parker ha- is in our position where he has to negotiate uh, the shifting uh, terms of the argument. Yeah, I think I think there's something to be said for. The closest I can come to a grand unified theory of the moral relationships in uh, Spider-Man Homecoming is something like um, it's good to do it face to face. It's bad to do it by proxy. Right. Like Happy is a functionary. He's sort of a he's sort of a parenting, uh, 
he he's like a, a parenting lieutenant. You know, he's standing in for like uh, for the officer who should be there, who is Tony, and it's all you know, standing in for the the lack of a, a real male family member, elder male family member. Um, Aunt May, I think, doesn't actually fall on the spectrum because a lot of this business is transacted among men in this particular movie, and so the idea, though, I I actually liked the running joke of of her being super attractive uh, because you know for 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 a couple of reasons I, I liked it. Um, but it was mixed with her relationship with Peter at, at times in a, in a way that was, that was uncomfortable. And like the, the, um, Though the the girls have uh, the girls and the women, uh, the high school girls and the adult women have roles of authority, like in the domestic or academic sphere, out in the the realm of kicky punchy. Right? It's really it's really sort of uh, uh, the men. So like it's good it's good when you're relating face to face. Which Tony does, uh, you know, the second time and subsequent time, but but not the first time when when the drone uh, carries Peter out of water. And it's bad, you know, it's bad when you're doing things by by proxy, right? Like um, this is actually this is actually a movie where a lot of the problem could have been obviated if if. you know, everyone had just had an upfront conversation about what was going on at one of several key uh, key points in the movie. And uh, you know, normally that is a storytelling. Fl- if if Tony had said, "Hey, yeah, we got we're we, you know message received about the arms deal, we're on it." You know, uh, if he had texted, also, hey, here's the suit. It has all these things that you're not ready for. Yeah, like, or you know, if it had been framed in terms of a like progressive training thing, right? Like you're on your way to to you're on a path to becoming uh, to becoming an Avenger. Or something you, you'll like get that. five like, gems if you go out and practice for two days. I mean, <laughs> then you uh, get upgraded to gold level. <laughs> well, li- I mean, a little bit, but that's like, uh, but 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 the, uh, it's not this kind of stupid gamification aspect that that I, I want to highlight. It's the aspect of like being engaged in the education process right like not just not just kind of making it not just making it automated not just kind of doing it by proxy and that like uh, yeah to to that point the movie makes it pretty clear like tony stark's parting advice is just total nonsense right you know don't do anything i wouldn't do but you know uh, you know what? Don't do anything. Uh, would you? Just do thing I would do. There's that very fine line in the middle there, which is complete, completely inscrutable and worthless advice at all. <laughs> and, and you know, to to, to to that point, you know, Peter Parker doesn't know what to do, and he's just kind of left flailing about on his own devices. Yeah, although he does have a man in a chair. Was anyone else? That was my second. Actually, I'll replace it. That was my least favorite part of the movie. A man in a chair. Good lord. <laughs> There is a name for that. There is a name for the person who gets on the computer and finds the schematics of the building that you're going to and gives them to you while you're running towards the building. That person is called a Chloe, and we're going to refer to it as such. (laughs) Woman in the chair, as it were. Woman in a chair, at the very least. (laughs) What is this, NCIS? Come on. Even in NCIS, it's yeah, a woman. Yep, NCIS, it's a woman. In Criminal Minds, it's a woman. Yep. yep. Uh, I mean, now that now you might argue, well, okay, relegating the women to the chair 
is itself sexist. But at the same time, let's not take away what we've given them and what they've made. And also, let's not forget Chloe, because I love Chloe, and I hope you all do, too. <laughs> hey, 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 Forget hey. about Christmas he- cards. What? What's up? <laughs> Heavyset Asian men need roles in film also. <laughs> I'm not saying it has to be played by Chloe from 24. I'm just saying that I'm, I'm hoping that there was a draft of the script where the joke was that he would be the Chloe. And then they scrapped it because they determined that their audience didn't watch 24 because they're too young or that they couldn't get the rights from Fox to reference 24 or that it wasn't worth it. (laughs) They got the rights from everything else, right? Like (laughs) Ferris Bueller. Well, that's a Disney thing. So so that's where that came from. But but Ferris Bueller was a was a good get. Anyway, uh, it it might be time to uh, swing uh, into the sunset on this podcast. So thanks very much for listening. Thanks very much to Pete and Mark for uh, talking over our friendly neighborhood web slinger with me. Uh, What did you think of Spider-Man Homecoming? Tell us in the comments on the show notes for this episode. Go to the website, the homepage. Uh, You'll find the little podcast widget there. Click show notes. Let us know in the comments what you think. Uh, we'll be back with more Overthinking It podcast next week. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't deserve it. of getting the rights to everything wasn't it really cool how at the beginning of the movie they played the spider pig song <laughs> yeah <laughs> spider pig spider pig does, does whatever, whatever a spider, spider pig does, spider pig does. <laughs> so you're saying it's in the simpsons extended universe as well right yes oh. <laughs> i don't have a cow man <laughs>